This week on Science for the People, we're talking about antibiotics, specifically why we don't seem to get any new ones. Why not? Follow the money. I'm talking with Marin McKenna about sky-high drug prices. But first, we will hear from David Schles about the antibiotic pipeline and what it takes to get a new drug to market. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. We all know what happens when we get a bacterial infection, right? You go to the doctor, you get an antibiotic. Simple. Most of the time, the antibiotic takes care of the problem. Unfortunately, we're facing more and more cases where it's no longer quite that simple. Bacteria evolve and spread quickly. Helped along by our overuse of antibiotics in people and in livestock, bacteria have figured out how to resist the drugs we use to kill them. Now, we face a growing problem of antibiotic resistance. Infections gain resistance to the most common drugs. So doctors pull out the more uncommon drugs, the ones with uncomfortable side effects. Then the bacteria get wise to those too. Doctors pull out the really uncommon antibiotics, the ones almost too dangerous to use. Now, there are some cases in which the bacteria are resistant even to those last-ditch efforts. Yikes. But wait, this is the 21st century. We've developed dozens of kinds of insulin and are capable of literally altering people's DNA. Surely, surely we could develop some new antibiotics to throw at the constant barrage of bacteria. And yes, we could. But mostly, we don't. Why not? It's the economy, stupid. Here to tell us more about it is David Schles, a retired infectious disease physician and former drug developer. He tracks the antibiotics market on his blog, Antibiotics, The Perfect Storm. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Well, thanks for having me. First, I think many people who are not in the medical profession or in drug development itself might not be aware just how exactly a new drug comes into being. And I was wondering if you could take us through the drug development process. You know, first, we start in a lab, and it could be a pharmaceutical company lab or an academic lab that finds a new mechanism to, say, kill a bacteria. And then they publish a paper on that. Hooray! Maybe it's somewhere big like science. But that's just the first step, right? Yeah, although I have to say that most of the time it doesn't even work like that. Um, if you look at all the old antibiotics that we have, like penicillin and tetracycline and things like that, th- those were discovered um, by finding other organisms uh, that produced substances that inhibited the growth of bacteria. So um, Fleming found on a petri dish that had been contaminated with a fungus that around that fungus the bacteria he had been growing uh, were inhibited from growing so there was a zone of clearing around this fungus and he realized that this fungus must be producing some antibacterial substance but he had no idea what it was and it took years um, about 20 years well 10, 10 to 15 years actually for them to figure out what it was and to actually get it uh, available for soldiers and ultimately uh, for the uh, for the market, uh, and that occurred in 1945 for penicillin. Um, tetracycline was discovered in a similar way by f- identifying some organism that produced a, a substance that inhibited uh, bacterial growth. So in the early days, uh, that's how we found antibiotics. And even today, some people still try and find antibiotics that way. Um, Sometimes uh, people try and find antibiotics by, as you say, discovering some new mechanism that they want to uh, exploit. But we've not been very good at that. Um, So that doesn't work as often as you might think. Uh, one of the questions that you had in mind was, so how long does that take? Let's say that you find something one way or another. First of all, the chances that you actually get it all the way to the market are probably less than 5%. From the time you discover it in the lab to the time you get it on the market, the chances of failure are probably 95% or greater. So researchers who work in this field just have to be used to failure. They have to somehow... Uh, get their heads around the idea that the vast majority of what they find is never going to make it anywhere other than to a few papers, uh, which is actually hard for these for these uh, researchers, many of whom are, are very dedicated to what they're doing. 
The other thing is the time issue. It takes 10 to 20 years from the time you find it in the laboratory to the time, if you are lucky enough to get it there, it gets all the way to the market. Uh, so it's a very long time span. And what's involved in that time span, first of all, is once you find something, it's the thing that you find is usually, these days anyway, not the antibiotic that's going to be on the market. You have to modify it frequently chemically to improve it. Either you have to improve its activity, you have to improve its safety, you have to improve its ability to get to the site of infection in the body. There are a lot of things that you have to work on before uh, you can even think about actually getting into uh, clinical trials. You also have to show that it's safe. Uh, usually you do that first in the Petri dish, and if that works, you go on and you try and do it in animals. And if you get through all of that, then you can think about clinical trials. So it takes quite a long time, and it costs a lot of money. So you might be surprised to learn that the last time I looked at this, the cost of getting an, uh, a drug, any drug, from a bench to the market is $2.6 billion. That is slightly more than I was expecting. Right. To be fair. <laughs> well, but the reason for that is this fact, the fact that 95% of what you do fails. So you have to pay for all those failures. I wanted to pursue that issue of failure. We were talking about kind of the, the points, you were kind of going through some of the steps that have to occur here. So, um, for example, you start with uh, not necessarily a new discovery, say, uh, let's say you start with a new mold that happens to produce a zone of clearing um, in the bacteria in a dish. Um, where are various points of failure that can occur? Well, the first one is that uh, not only does the mold, the product from the mold, kill bacteria, but it also kills human cells, uh, which is not always a good thing. So that's the first and easiest point of failure, which is the most common one, actually. Uh, a lot of th the problem is to, to find an antibiotic, you have to understand what you're doing. You want to find something that kills bacteria, but, but that doesn't kill people. And we have a lot of in, a lot in common uh, genetically with bacteria, actually. So this is not so easy uh, to find something that's specific for the bacteria and won't hurt people. So that's the first point of failure. Uh, and then beyond that, there are lots of other points, like um, it works in the petri dish, but you can't make it work in animals because it doesn't get absorbed or it gets destroyed by the animal's metabolism or for lots of other reasons. Uh, and if it doesn't work in animals, one of the good things about antibiotics is that the animal models we use to determine whether antibiotics work or not are excellent. They are very predictive of what will happen in people. We can even determine or get a very good idea of the dose of antibiotic that we should use in a person from the animal models. So they're very, very helpful, but that's also a very big point of failure. What kind of animal models do we actually use for antibiotic testing? Mostly my mice. Mm -hmm. Mostly mice. Uh, those are the ones that have been validated and shown to be very predictive of what happens in people, actually. And... You mentioned um, some of the issues are associated with things like, for example, potency. Um, there's actually a famous story um, of an, the early days of penicillin when they tried to actually use it for the first time in a man. I, I want to say it was a firefighter who had been injured and he was dying of a you know bacterial infection. I think, I think, yeah, a policeman, I believe. A policeman, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and they tried to use the tiny amounts of penicillin they had and they had to use they they couldn't get enough of it they actually ended up recycling the man's urine in That's an right. effort to try and get enough penicillin and it actually it did not work he died um yeah well they couldn't yeah they it was it was taking longer to cure the infection than um they had anticipated uh, so that uh, even their efforts to repurify penicillin from the urine uh could not sustain could not sustain the patient and so there's issues, for example, of 
you know, potency and, and getting enough of the drug. So are all of these kind of chemical modifications, packaging modifications? Like, are there lots of little tweaks that go into this? Well, in the case of penicillin, it was pretty simple. It was just uh, knowing how to manufacture it. Um, so knowing how to get the mold to produce more of it and knowing how to purify it from cultures where you grew the mold. Uh, those were the issues for penicillin. Uh, but there are many issues. Uh, as you mentioned, some of them are chemistry. So you have to uh, undertake chemical modification. Some of them are around manufacturing. And some of them are around avoiding toxicity or avoiding metabolism. So there are a lot of things that you have to keep in mind for any drug, not just antibiotics, um, to get it from the bench to uh, the marketplace. And of course, we do have animal models. The animal models are really pretty predictive, but we also still require clinical trials. How do you do a clinical trial for an antibiotic? Is it different from clinical trials for other drugs? Well, um, the, the model that we use for antibiotics is based on the following concept. And that concept is that if you have a therapy that you know works, you cannot withhold it from somebody, right? So we know that antibiotics work. So what we do is we compare a new antibiotic to an older antibiotic, and we look for a result that suggests that the newer one is at least no worse than the older one. And this is a very hard concept for people to understand, but the fact is that um, when, you're, when you're carrying out a clinical trial, uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, to uh, treat people with an antibiotic that might not work for them. So if you enroll somebody in the trial and you have your old antibiotic and the organism they have is resistant can you continue treating that patient with the old antibiotic knowing that it might be resistant? And in fact, you don't know what the patient's on, so you don't know which drug he's getting uh, because you're blinded when you are participating, you know, you're, the physician is participating in a trial, he's blinded, he or she. So um, the patient has to come off the study. So the best you can hope for is showing that your new drug is at least no worse than the old drug. Um, and that's a little different than other drugs, but not necessarily. There are some other drugs uh, that have to do this, this a similar sort of uh, trial. So it's not just antibiotics that have to do these trials. But antibiotics have been stuck in that mode basically since the almost since the discovery of penicillin. There are a few exceptions to that. Um, in, uh, for example, in the treatment of uh, tuberculosis where you add one drug on top of another drug, and you'd look to see if it's uh, superior. But uh, in the antibiotic world, aside from things like that, we generally show that at, at least it's no worse clinically. And then we rely on other data to show the advantages that the antibiotic might have. Like instead of having to give it three or four times a day, you can give it once a day. Instead of, uh, you can show that it's active against resistant strains in vitro uh, and in animal models that the older antibiotics are not active against. So you use those sorts of data to help you show the advantages of the newer drug in addition to the clinical trials that show that A, the antibiotic works and that at least it's not any worse than uh, whatever antibiotic you're comparing it to. So that's kind of how we do it in the antibiotic world. And of course, at every stage of this process, antibiotics will fail. They will not be potent enough. They will get digested before they ever get anywhere. They will, you know, yeah, so the, turn out so to be very odds, toxic to the kidneys. <laughs> yeah, so the odds are um, once when you first start the clinical trials, the chances of actually getting from there all the way to the market are about 20%. So once you get clinical trials, it's it's not so desperately depressing, but it's still not great. <laughs> well, the odds are definitely against you. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that figure $2.6 billion to bring a drug from development to the market. And that's a lot of zeros. Um, <laughs> who who pays for that? 
<laughs> we do. <laughs> Consumers. Uh, because, like I said, um, the company who's doing this has to pay for all the failures that they have um, getting all the way to market. So, And the later a drug, by the way, the later a drug gets in development, the more expensive the failure is. So if it fails in the last stages of development, we call that phase three development, um, it's really expensive. Uh, but the way the companies work is they build the failures into how they price their various antibiotics, and that's how they ultimately – or various drugs, actually. And that's how they make uh, ultimately a return on their investment. And that's kind of for the cost for a drug in general. And new drugs are brought to market all the time. Um, how do new antibiotics compare – with other drugs in terms of the number of drugs being brought to market? Um, you know, are there, you know, more antibiotics being brought to market in comparison to new anti-cancer drugs? You know, like how, how do antibiotics compare to drugs for other conditions? Uh, these days, antibiotics are not in a very good place. Uh, there are relatively few new antibiotics coming to market compared to, say, new uh, cancer drugs. Uh, or new um, respiratory drugs, or new drugs for diabetes. I mean, uh, and the market reflects that actually. So the the market for um, cancer drugs, that the sales of cancer drugs, is uh, more than twice the size of the market. It's almost three times the size of the market for uh, compared to uh, compared to antibiotics. So there are antibiotic drugs in the pipeline right now, it should be noted. There's actually um, a great table um, from Pew that I'll be linking to in the show notes for this episode detailing what new antibiotics are in development and where they are right now. But you mentioned they struggle. What makes, why are antibiotics struggling on the market mm. right now compared to, say, cancer drugs? Uh, uh, well, it all has, it comes down to money. Uh, I think it comes down to money. So, um, the problem is that there, there are several problems with this. I mean, one is that resistant infections, uh, when they are, occur, are bad. They're hard to treat. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, some of the drugs that you might want to use are toxic. Um, but they're not very common, thank goodness. So there's a recent paper um, published in a journal of the Infectious Diseases Society of America uh, showing that about 1% of all serious infections that they looked at were what they called difficult to treat, that is resistant to most or all first-line antibiotics. So if you're one of the 1%, it's not so good. But if you're not, you know, we can find something to, to treat you with. Um, the other issue is that when a new antibiotic comes out, because physicians are worried about resistance, because, you know, with antibiotics, there's kind of a rule. And the rule is you use it, you lose it. Because bacteria, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, become resistant. So physicians, rightly, try and limit the use of these new drugs to situations where they really need it, which is the way they should be the way they should be behaving for all new drugs, including antibiotics. They should be used only when you need them. And this, of course, is very good for public health, uh, but not so good for the marketplace. The third issue has to do with uh, price. So if you're only going to sell at a low prescription volume, so only few patients are really going to use this drug, then in order to make a return on your investment, the price has to be very high. But that high price discourages hospitals, pharmacists uh, from making the antibiotic available for use. So, for example, uh, uh, in the United States, we've analyzed um, the use of some of these older, cheaper, but very toxic antibiotics for resistant infections compared to the use of the newer, more expensive antibiotics. And what we're finding is that these toxic antibiotics are still used very frequently. Why? Because hospitals do not want to pay an upfront uh, cost 
of stocking these new expensive antibiotics for something that's relatively uncommon. So they keep in stock the older toxic drug uh, and maybe the physician will have access to the newer drug and maybe not. And maybe it'll, but normally if they do, it's uh, several days by the time they can get it. So, and, and those first several days in a resistant infection are critical for the survival of the patient. Uh, but pricing, I think, is a real dissuasive uh, issue for hospitals and pharmacists. The other thing to keep in mind, I don't know what the situation is like in Canada, but in the U.S., uh, 70% of hospitals are under 200 beds, and 55% of hospitals are under 100 beds. And those hospitals are not going to put up the money for new expensive antibiotics that are going to be a, a useful for rare infections. Um, Bigger hospitals, you know, maybe they'll do this. And I, there's some data coming out that, that this is true among the larger academic centers. And they're using more of these newer expensive drugs. But the, the majority of hospitals in the U.S. will have a really hard time with this. So what I'm hearing here is kind of there's an issue of both supply and demand. So on the supply side, this is incredibly expensive to develop a new drug and get it to market. And on the demand side, nobody wants to pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> because well, it's not, so expensive. They, they don't want to pay for it. And they want to try and avoid using it if they can. Right. So you you talk on your blog um, a little bit about kind of push and pull incentives in drug development. And right now, antibiotic drug development kind of operates on a kind of push incentive, a push model. What do you what do you mean when you talk about push incentives? Yeah, push incentives are uh, economic incentives that occur before, prior to market. So uh, in this case, uh, push incentives are essentially grants of money that reduce the costs of research and development for the company. Uh, so there are granting agencies. These granting agencies, uh, and there are a number of them, uh, one of them, for example, is Carbex, uh, uh, which is funded mainly by Wellcome Trust and by BARDA, uh, which is part of Health and Human Services here in the U.S. Um, and they get some in-kind uh, help in terms of uh, facilities uh, from the NIH. Uh, but anyway, they uh, will provide um, financing for research and development up until the very early stages of uh, clinical development for companies, and this reduces their cost. But they do require that the companies pay for part of this themselves. So it has to be a public-private partnership. And most of the um, organizations that provide these push incentives do require private money as well. And I believe that this is be becoming problematic because the number of private investors willing to invest in the antibiotic area is taking a nosedive right now and has been for the last couple of years, but certainly in the last year or so uh, and in the last few months since the uh, bankruptcy of a small company called Acagen, who got an, a new antibiotic active against resistant organisms approved and within a few months went bankrupt. Uh, so it's like no good deed shall go unpunished. But investors have totally fled the area since that event. And I think these co small companies are having trouble getting private money uh, in to complement the public monies that they're also getting as part of these push incentives. So I think that's going to be a continuing problem here. Why are the investors running away from from these companies. I mean, why, you know, the company brought it to market. That sounds like a success. And, and then it went bankrupt. Why? Because there's no market. They, they cannot make a return on their investment. And investors are not going to invest in things where they can't make a, a, a return. Uh, and th so the drug the, would have sat on the shelf. It would have been because doctors were afraid to use it until they absolutely needed it. And then when they absolutely needed it, they didn't really want to pay for it. I think that company got something like $400 million in uh, push incentives. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. The company got spent about $400 million to develop this drug. Uh, so uh, some of it was private money. Most of it was public money. But I think it was over $400 million. 
And uh, in the first six months of sales, I think they sold about a million dollars worth of drug. Oof, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so on your blog, you talk a little bit about the need for different incentives, because clearly the push incentive isn't really working. You know, even when these drugs come to market, they're not doing well. The companies that make them are not doing well. And there's a lot of really good reasons for that to actually be the case. Um, so you're talking about the need for different incentives, and particularly you're interested in pull incentives. What is a pull incentive? So pull incentive uh, would be something uh, that occurs after market. So after a drug is brought to uh, market. And what a pull incentive is meant to provide in this case is essentially a return on investment for the investors uh, and the companies. So uh, it could be, there are many forms this pull incentive could take. A lot of people have looked at a lot of different things. Um, the one that's being seriously considered in Congress right now is uh, part of a bill called Disarm. I don't ask me, I can't remember what that stands for, but basically it's a bill that simply allows in the U.S. Um, uh, Medicare and therefore most private insurance companies to reimburse the hospital for these expensive drugs above and beyond their usual reimbursement charges for whatever disease it is the patient has. Uh, so it would make, would make it easier for hospitals to bring in these drugs up front. Of course, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this. I think it's kind of a baby step because I think it'll help for big uh, centers, but not for the large majority of small hospitals that, are, that we have in the U S. Um, but other pull incentives that people have thought about essentially is a, a prize. So if you get a needed antibiotic to market and, um, uh, will give you a bunch of cash as long as you continue to manufacture it, you make it the antibiotic accessible to people, um, and you provide education in terms of how it should be used and how it shouldn't be used and things like that. So it's kind of a contractual arrangement. But basically, at the end of the day, they get a chunk of money. Um, how much money? I think uh, f for me, uh, that it has to be about $2 billion. I mean, there are a lot of figures out there, anywhere from $800 million to $2 billion. I th I'm on the high end because I want to incentivize large pharmaceutical companies to get back into the antibiotics game. And I think with that amount of money on the table, large pharmaceutical companies will come back in. And when they come back in by in-licensing some of these new products from smaller companies, then investors will then be uh, motivated to reinvest in the area. But until that occurs, I think that's that's not going to happen. The other uh, pull incentive that people are talking about is um, a um, transferable uh, exclusivity voucher. So what that would mean is, let's say, I don't know, you're AbbVie and you have the Humira which earns something like $20 billion a year. Um, if you bring a new antibiotic to market because you've bought it from some small company or whatever, um, you get an extra whatever number of months of exclusivity uh, in the marketplace for Humira. So it delays generic intrusion by a certain amount of time. Um, there has to be some guardrails around that because you obviously don't want to give them $10 billion <laughs> for a new antibiotic. Uh, but maybe you'd give them another month in this case of exclusivity, which is worth a lot of money to them. So, you know, th those are just examples of the various different pull incentives that people are discussing. I think the problem is that aside from the disarm bill, which is uh, in front of the Senate in the U.S. right now. Um, none of these are getting anywhere. Uh, and I'm not sure they will. The other pull incentive that uh, people have uh, actually implemented, this is in the United Kingdom, is uh, essentially a value-based payment. Um, and several states have pursued this in the U.S. for things that aren't antibiotics, like hepatitis C drug. So the idea is that... Um, you want to 
you want to buy a certain number of doses, uh, you know, or to to uh, of anti- of new antibiotic for resistant infections in your state or in this case in the United Kingdom. Uh, so you say to the company, okay, I'm going to buy a certain number of doses at this price. Now the price might be lower per patient than what the company would normally charge, but because it's a guaranteed price. Uh, and they probably have more patients that they're going to be able to treat. It's kind of a win-win for both the company and um, and the country or the state or whoever. Uh, so, and that's actually being implemented in the United Kingdom. The problem is that I don't think it's going to, at the end of the day, be enough money to be much of an incentive. But that's a kind one kind of incentive that people are looking at very seriously. And when you talk about these incentives, you know, you're talking about awards, you're talking about, um, you know, increases in patent length. I mean, the reality is that what that comes down to functionally is giving drug companies money, and that money is coming out of either taxpayer dollars um, or those taxpayers' wallets when they pay high amounts of money for those drugs that are still under patent. I mean, this is literally giving drug companies money, right? Yeah, right. And that's why none of this is going anywhere because everybody hates the pharmaceutical industry and um, nobody wants to give them money. So um, I think that's kind of the public health and um, political conundrum that we're in right now. So what I've been trying to do is think of other things we can do beyond money to um, – to help in the uh, marketplace. So one of the things that we've been talking about is getting expert societies to provide clinical guidelines in a very um, um, kind of real-time, sort of at a real-time sort of pace so that physicians know what they're supposed to use and what they're not supposed to use and when they're supposed to use it and when they're not supposed to use it, when the drugs come out or near the time the drugs come out. Um, the expert societies have been doing a terrible job of that uh, late, uh, forever because it takes so long for them to get any guidelines out. But I think in, with a, with a uh, streamlined system, uh, they could actually do this, I, I think, without a lot of trouble. So I think the expert societies have got to step up and provide clinical guidelines, and at the very least, this would uh, in, improve or, or accelerate the uptake of some of these newer, less toxic, and more effective antibiotics that are coming to market. Um, of course, you know, as you mentioned, nobody wants to give pharmaceutical companies money. <laughs> you know, it, it, they have a really bad rap. It seems like many of these companies are making money hand over fist already. Some people might say, you know, well, what about a publicly funded option? If we're going to use taxpayer dollars, can we ramp up people at the National Institutes of Health to make and develop new antibiotics so that people who need them can get them for cheaper? Um, is there room for a kind of publicly funded option, like kind of a, a publicly funded government option for this sort of thing? Well, people have looked at that. If you look at my blog, there's a recent uh, two-part blog from um, Brad Spellberg, uh, who discusses exactly that. There are a lot of problems with this. Um, I mean, first of all, yes, I think it could work. But I think it's going to take a long time for it to work. Uh, for one, I mean, it's just setting it up is going to take several years. Uh, it also is going to cost money. It's not going to be... You know, it's not for free, so the government will still have to spend money to set it up. Um, secondly, there's a question about who would do it. So the NIH is probably the wrong group to do this. Um, they, they're not that experienced uh, in antibiotic discovery and development, although they are more experienced now than they used to be. Um, they're still not that experienced, so we need somebody... Uh, some group that's very experienced in this area to actually get involved. And because uh, large pharma has basically abandoned this area over the last couple of decades, um, there are lots of 
uh, antibiotic researchers out there who would love to get back into the area. So I don't think it would be difficult to hire people, but they have to be hired into the right setting. So I think that's a challenge. And the other thing is, given the timelines, 10 to 20 years to get a new antibiotic to market, you know, we're talking about time. So yeah, sure, we could have a public option, but it's not going to bear fruit for a long time. And we need to understand that. And we need to have a plan for what we're doing in the meantime. So in your in your view, what do you think is like the number one thing that needs to happen to get more antibiotics to market? I mean, we need them and we don't really have time. <laughs> I, well, I think the number one thing is we have to solve the economic problem, which is unfortunately, at least on a temporary basis, going to mean giving money to the pharmaceutical industry. I don't see a way around that. I don't think it's going to be solved without that. I think the public option is uh, going to take too long to get us where we need to go. So in the interim, we need some sort of uh, um, pull incentive that that will assage uh, investors and allow them to reinvest in the area. Otherwise, which, what I'm afraid you're going to see over the next couple of years is a lot more bankruptcies similar to what a Cajun has just gone through. Um, I predict in, tonight, in 2020 and 2021, we're going to see more of those unless we do something concrete about the economics here. Well, David, this is sad and depressing and, you know, <laughs> can't wait till the revolution comes. But thank you right. so much for taking the time to talk with us. All right. Well, thanks for having me again. And uh, uh, nice talking with you. We've linked to David's excellent blog, which tracks issues of antibiotic development at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we've all seen those cases where an unscrupulous company charges through the nose for a needed drug. It'll make anybody's blood boil. But for antibiotics, the price calculus can get complicated. And Marin McKenna will be with us to explain it all. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Now that we've heard a little bit about what exactly it costs to make a new antibiotic, you might wonder why so many of the drugs we take for strep throat or whatever are so cheap. And they are cheap. The older drugs we all learned about, streptomycin, penicillin, they are long ago off patent and they are incredibly inexpensive. But they're also going to become more and more obsolete as bacteria evolve to resist them. But other older drugs, they aren't always in use. Some, as we've heard, are kept in reserve for when we need them most. But that doesn't always mean they're cheap. And here to tell us about why some antibiotics are getting seriously expensive is Marin McKenna, a columnist at Wired Magazine and author of the book Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Marin, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. We have been talking with Dr. Schles about the drug pipeline and how long it takes and, more importantly, how much it costs to get a drug, any drug, to market. That includes antibiotics, but antibiotics are actually generally relatively inexpensive. Do we know why that is? So it's an interesting puzzle that we've never priced antibiotics any higher than they are currently priced. Because when you think about it, antibiotics literally sometimes save us from death, from infectious disease. And even when they don't save us from death, they are preventing serious infections with many, many sequelae that could harm you over a long time. So why don't we value that? Well, it may be because antibiotics in a way are too successful. They do such a good job of curing infections, often in a relatively short period of time, in days or weeks or months, if you're very unlucky, that they make the problem that they were given for just go away. Unlike heart disease, unlike cancer, unlike a number of other conditions for which we take drugs for a very long time, we take antibiotics for a relatively short period of time, and we cure the thing they're given for, and they kind of vanish out of our consciousness. And so I think that's created a sort of implicit value judgment that the problem solved, therefore we shouldn't have to pay too much for the thing that solved the problem. So in a way, pharmaceutical companies are unwilling 
to invest in antibiotics because they are too successful? In a way, antibiotics are victims of their own success. Now, it must be said, of course, that another problem with antibiotics that contributes to pharmaceutical companies wanting to back away from them is that the bacterial world adapts to the presence of antibiotics and responds with antibiotic resistance. And it's a pretty predictable phenomenon that once you put a drug out into the world and people start using it, the bacterial world will respond, resistance will develop, and within a certain number of years, your drug will not work as well as it did. That doesn't affect the pricing, but it does affect the background willingness of companies to invest in them. Because those drugs will end up kind of sitting on the shelf until doctors actually need them. And so even if your price your price can be whatever, it doesn't matter. No one's going to buy it until they absolutely, absolutely need it. They might keep it on the shelf until it's absolutely needed, in which case you're not making any money as a company. Or physicians might put the drug into use, in which case the drug runs out of effectiveness within a certain number of years, almost certainly before the point at which the drug becomes profitable. So in a way, they're victims of their own success, but they're also victims of their own failure. Because you could eventually make a profit from a new antibiotic if the bacteria weren't evolving to become resistant. If resistance did not exist, the situation in which antibiotics were coming into the world, coming into the market, would be very different. Unfortunately, we have to resign that to a hypothetical because resistance exists. Therefore, we need new antibiotics and as I'm sure your other guest told you, the pipeline for antibiotics is running dry. Yes, we've been talking with Dr. Slays about push and pull economics. And push economics in his definition, the idea that basic research, if you pour funding into basic research, it will lead to profitable drug leads. And so you pour money into the basic research and into the transition um, from basic research to um, you know a drug that is able to be developed for the clinic. That's not working. And there's also an argument for pull economics instead, incentives at the end of the drug development pipeline that will in part pay back companies for making those drugs. Um, those involve paying those companies <laughs> lots of money, which is kind of a difficult thing to get behind. But you wrote an article last year about another kind of pull incentive, which is kind of a mean pull pull incentive really, really expensive drugs. Um, can you talk about Nostrum Laboratories, which I cannot believe they name themselves Nostrum Laboratories, um, and the antibiotic they bought? And I will pronounce this antibiotic name exactly once. <laughs> Nitrofurantoin. Nitrofurantoin. Well done. Um, usually known uh, in the American market, though not this particular formula that we're going to talk about as macrobid. Nitrofuantoin is a very old drug that is primarily used for urinary tract infections. And the particular formula that was at the heart of this controversy was a liquid form that's used by, in children, in the elderly, and anyone who can't swallow a pill. So let's talk for a moment about the puzzle of pricing, and then we'll talk about Nostrum Laboratories and how they kind of accidentally took a thought experiment and brought it into the real world, and things didn't quite go as they planned. So this conversation about why do we pay so little for antibiotics actually has been perking along for quite a while. Um, in the New York Times a couple of years ago, Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania and is a member of the family, the Emanuel brothers who produced Rahm Emanuel, the, uh, the former um, uh, political aide and mayor of Chicago. And uh, there's a third Emanuel who was uh, the model for the agent in the show Entourage. Very um uh, interesting family. Anyway, Ezekiel, the oncologist, wrote a column in the New York Times that we ought to be willing to pay more for drugs because we pay very large amounts of money for other drugs. He, the example he gave was that we're willing to pay $100,000 for cancer drugs, even though a cancer drug might only 
extend life by weeks or maybe months. It's not necessarily going to cure the cancer. We'll pay tens of thousands of dollars to replace a knee with an artificial knee, but we won't pay more than hundreds of dollars at the most for most antibiotics. Now, since he wrote that, some antibiotics have come on the market that actually have been priced higher than that. There's a drug uh, called Avacaz. It's actually a combination, I believe, of two antibiotics that came out in 2015. So actually just a little bit after Emmanuel wrote that column that's only used in hospitals, only for cases of very serious drug-resistant pneumonia, and, and can be, is usually priced in the three to $5,000 range. That's extraordinary for an antibiotic, but it's pennies compared to most cancer drugs, especially since in the same span of years, since that column was written, we've seen the advent of the CAR-T therapies for certain cancers. And CAR-T therapies, which are an immunotherapy for very rare cancers, are expected to cost about $500,000 per patient, which is $500,000 per dose because they, they, they take only one dose to work. So, so here we are with, with extraordinarily now expensive cancer drugs. And the conversation goes on, why can't we raise antibiotics? Why don't we value antibiotics more? Into this conversation stepped this company, Nostrum Laboratories. I myself laughed when I saw the name. Like, really? <laughs> Seriously. <clears throat> Maybe this really was just a thought experiment after all. Maybe somebody scripted this. And so what they did, um, and this is the thing that, is, that has, this is not the first time that this happened. They they went and found an old off-patent drug, nitrofuantoin, a back, just the backbone of urinary tract infection treatment in the United States and in Europe. And they said, we could raise the price on this. And they raised the price a lot. And the, what happened is not, I think, what people who have been recommending raising prices on antibiotics expected to happen, which is not that the market said, oh, yes, we see the light now. Let us pay more for these undervalued drugs that we have never spent enough on before. Instead, the market said, this is disgusting. Are you crazy? Among other people, the immediately former head of the FDA, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, tweeted that this was an incredibly inappropriate thing to do. Major professional organizations in medicine wrote letters saying that this was an incredibly inappropriate thing to do, that profit was going to be made off the backs of the people forced to take this drug um, for a condition that, because it mostly occurs in women, is a sort of a condition mostly not taken seriously by medicine anyway. And the company, Nostrum, was completely unrepentant. They said, we have an obligation to our shareholders to make money where we can. Now, the last company to try this, which was um, the company headed by uh, pharma executive Martin I can never Martin say this Martin Thank you very much. Yes. Um, a, a name that has become a byword for <laughs> grasping... <laughs> pharmaceutical. Exactly. <laughs> he, he did a similar thing just a few years previously. It was not, strictly speaking, an antibiotic. It was an anti-parasitic drug called Daraprim, another very old formula, off-patent, generic. Daraprim at the time was selling for $13.50, $13.50 a pill, and he raised it to $750 a pill. He is now in prison, though not because of that pricing, but because of some other uh, things that he engaged in. So clearly, the as much as the thought experiment has been out there, if if we just charge more for antibiotics, maybe we will solve this whole Priceline problem because companies will be better rewarded for their work. In practice, it didn't work out the way anyone planned. This is a fascinating story to me because, you know, as you mentioned. It was, you know, people saw it as unconscionable for, unconscionable for you to make money off the backs of ill people by making this antibiotic expensive, right? And I mean, yeah, every time you see stuff like this, I mean, 
your blood just boils. <laughs> it's horrible. But at the same time, yeah, okay, it's bad to make money off the backs of poor people suffering from diseases with this hideously expensive antibiotic. By the same token, isn't it just as bad to make money off the backs of people with cancer with $500,000 CAR-T therapies? Which is the subject of a policy discussion going on in the United States right now, forcing down the prices for drugs in the United States, which, let's remember, are higher than prices for the same drugs anywhere else in the industrialized world, is a really active area of sort of policy discussion between Congress and the White House and so forth. So, yes, it is almost certainly true that cancer drugs in the United States, to take the example we've been using, are overpriced. But on the other hand, it's probably also true that antibiotics are underpriced. And the problem of how to appropriately fund antibiotic discovery and development is, a, is really thorny. There, there are a lot of different proposals out there now, some of them more nuanced than writing giant checks to pharma companies. <laughs> and, um, and none of them, the more nuanced ideas have been put in and have been like created yet. They've only been sort of proposed as other thought experiments, but it's pretty clear if we want antibiotics to continue to be available, new antibiotics to be available, something is going to have to change. Why do you think it's interesting because people, we do, we grumble about it. We're angry about it. People are trying to propose policy changes to stop this really high drug pricing. But at the same time, there are people paying $500,000 for a CAR-T therapy. Why are high prices for cancer drugs so much more kind of accepted as the norm than high prices for antibiotics? Is this more the case of, well, they've always been cheap before? I think, in a way, this is my own hypothesis, is that cancer has about it a kind of difficulty and a kind of almost glamour because of the difficulty that when we talk about, you know, cancer, we talk about cancer as a disease, but we also talk about it as a metaphor, right? Um, that, that we're going, when we say we're going to cure cancer, you know, the thing that they said as far back as like the Johnson administration, that um, that is almost a synecdoche for for something like a moonshot, for an incredibly difficult and noble thing that humanity should do. Nobody really says that about curing a staph infection or even curing pneumonia. So, so as much as there's this kind of like glamour around the difficulty of cancer, there's a lack of glamour, a kind of pedestrianness around most of the things that antibiotics are used for. And as it, they are considered sort of every day, um, I, I think we kind of consign the things that cure them to a kind of everyday category that doesn't deserve investment or attention or creative thinking about how to keep them coming. Is there anything to I was I was just thinking, you know, um, is there any anything to maybe the idea that if you're getting a treatment for cancer that is expensive, it is probably because you have no other choice. Whereas with antibiotics, I think in the past, we've always kind of assumed that there are other drug choices, you know? Um, so for example, I was diagnosed with a penicillin allergy when I was a kid. Um, I don't know if I actually have that penicillin allergy, but I was diagnosed with it and they would, and my doctors would just go, Oh, okay. We'll just give you Z-Pak instead. And it was just, it was very clear that there were always other things on the shelf, other options. Um, do you think that it's because we've never really thought of antibiotics as kind of a last resort before, whereas we think of cancer drugs as kind of this last resort and therefore more expensive? I think a couple of things um, contributed to what you're describing. The first is, in fact, there were other classes of drugs that people could move to for most infections. You know, you could, you could start with a penicillin, you could move to a semi-synthetic penicillin, you could try, I don't know, a macrolide, a, a cephalosporin, something like that, depending on the infection. So there was no sense for a long time that any one drug was a last resort drug. And in parallel with that, 
I think there was no sense for a very long time that infectious diseases of this type would actually kill you. But in fact, now, both of those things are true. There are antibiotics that that are in use today that, that medicine literally refers to as last resort drugs. They are the drug that if you're, if an infection is resistant to every other class of antibiotics, this is the one that they try. And there's two or three of them. And if that doesn't work, you are out of luck. And there are people now dying in the United States every week from what's called pan-resistant infections. Infections for which no antibiotic works. And there's a kind of emerging genre of video and text in which people who work in infectious disease clinicians describe their shock in having finding that they had a patient for which there was literally no drug that worked and watching that patient die and having to tell their families that there was nothing they could do. So, you know, just as as we're starting to understand that antibiotics can, in fact, be last resort drugs, we're also starting to understand that the thing that we give antibiotics for is as deadly, is as fatal as cancer can be. So do you think maybe, you know, it's very clear right now that people are not willing to tolerate um, the high prices for drugs and I mean, I personally don't think people should have to tolerate super high prices for any kind of medical thing, but, you know, just my opinion. Um, I mean, do you think that people will come to tolerate higher prices for antibiotics as the situation becomes more dire? So what I hope will happen is that we will reframe the conversation around making antibiotics, <clears throat> which let's, let's remember, as with any new drug is a complicated process that takes conservatively decades, you know, a, a minimum of 10, maybe up to 20 years of discovery and development and clinical trials before you have a compound on which you have spent 10 to 20 years of R&D money that you must get reimbursed in some manner. Um, uh, a report from, I believe it was the Rand Corporation that came out a couple of years ago, estimated that for most antibiotic development, the drug only gets to profitability in year 23 of that process, which is approximately two years before it's entitled to go generic. Which means that between resistance and wanting to hold it back and the looming threat of a generic version, there is almost no hope that a company is going to make enough to earn back its R&D, which is a good reason from a company's point of view to back off. What I hope will happen is that people will start to see that there, it's possible that there are other models in which we could make antibiotics that would change the way in which we fund drug discovery and development that's not simply big or small company embarking on a solo path to a compound that goes to market. And one of the, the forms that people are talking about is that antibiotic development would be something more like a public-private utility in which uh, a certain le lower level of return would be accepted, much in the way we fund electric companies, because we recognize that there's something that is coming out of the electric company that we all need every day. A another kind of form of doing drug development that would be different than what's happening now is to do it more actually like military contracting, where something like, you know, when the military wants tanks or airplanes, they understand that tanks and airplanes take many years to develop and they go to the companies that would develop those and they say, right, we want a tank or airplane in 20 years and here is the path by which we're going to get there and here is the payments we're going to make along the way, but we're also going to exert a fairly strict degree of control over what you do as you're developing this thing for us. We're going to give you specs. We're going to to be very in there on the discussions back and forth. Um, and we're want, we want you to build a thing that will be useful in 20 years, not useful today. What that effectively says is that, um, you know, that, that military hardware is something that exists in the national interest. And if we saw antibiotics as a thing like military hardware that 
needed to be produced in the national interest, we might be willing to accept a different funding model and also a different degree of control over that funding model than just saying to a pharma company, right, you know, go make something and see what the market will bear. Marin, that is an astonishingly hopeful way to end what I felt was getting to be super dark. So thank you so much. You are welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Marin McKenna and her writing on this subject, check out her column at Wired. Um, we've linked to that as well as to her book, Big Chicken, at scienceforthepeople.ca. And hey, that's a website. It's our website where there are links and you can click on them to follow us and subscribe to the show. You should try that out. And if you like what you hear, drop us a few bucks per month on our Patreon. You get access to fun extras. You help keep our show running. You might like it. And we're way cheaper than any new antibiotic. So thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>